Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day there came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. God's holiness, his majesty, and his might are on display here in Exodus, the 19th chapter. And how different, I'm asking you, how different is this manifestation of God compared to any conception of God that people, by and large, have today? Most people commonly entertain the notion that God can be approached on their terms any time and in any way they feel they might do so. I mean, generally speaking, the spirit of our culture think, surely all this required is sincerity. All that's required is sincerity. So long as one is sincere, they believe they can seek God and he has to hear them. So long as they're sincere, they can pray to God and he must hear them. So long as one is sincere, he will indeed respond. Or just claim ignorance like an agnostic. Say, well, we, we can't really know God, so naturally, if I just claim ignorance until the end, he'll, he'll have to accept me. We see both today. God, they foolishly claim, uh, understands. God will meet us halfway, 
After all, God loves everybody equally. He's everybody's friend. It's just that not everybody knows it yet. Question, is that what we've witnessed in the Exodus account thus far? No, thank you very much. One voice. Look, when God chose to move in and redeem Israel, is that how it was for all the nations? Is that how it was for Egypt? That he was Egypt's friend, they just didn't know it yet? Is that how it was? No, that's not how it was. That's not how it is today. Not even Israel, the nation, the little tiny nation God called to himself according to his grace, according to his mercy, not even they could presume upon God. Never, ever presume upon God. I say that in love as a warning. That truth is made vividly clear right here at the foot of Mount Sinai. They dare not say in this account, hey guys, let's go up to the mountain and see God. Come on gang, let's go take a peek at this holy God. After all, God's sensitive to seekers, is he not? Is he not sensitive to seekers? Answer, no he is not. To step beyond the boundaries that are established here in Exodus is to be incinerated. That's fried seeker. (laughs) To barge into God's presence is an instantaneous, instantaneous death sentence. You know, the the Lord is revealed in the Old Testament. This Lord right here in Exodus, he's revealed in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 4, he's described as the Lord your God who is a consuming fire. Okay? That's, That's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is described in Hebrews 12, 25 as God who is a consuming fire. Let us therefore, it says in the New Testament, offer acceptable worship to this God who is a consuming fire. You mean to tell me that under the new covenant, under grace, we can offer unacceptable worship? Newsflash. Newsflash. The God that's revealed here in the Old Testament is the same God revealed in the new. So what's true for the salvation of this nation, little Israel here, is true for everybody to this very day. The concern for Israel is the concern for all people everywhere to this day. And that is this, how can sinful men and women possibly be brought into a relationship with this infinitely holy God and not be consumed by his radiant, incinerating holiness? That's the question. How does anyone upon death, and you will die, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the what? And the judgment. You will stand before this God. How can anyone stand before God, especially while here on earth, everybody thinks they can warm themselves to a different fire? After all, all roads lead to God. 
It's the common thought of the day. Let me say this at the outset, and then we'll get into this. There is no approaching God apart from his covenant, apart from the shedding of innocent blood, and apart from a mediator. That's your outline. To this day, thinking that you can come and stand before God without them, as sincere as one may be, will sincerely perish in hell forever. As gently as I say that, I say that authoritatively as the word says that. Guilty of violating God's holy law. Guilty. Many, many people think God to be some approachable, grandfatherly figure. Like some old guy sitting on a park bench, feeding pigeons, just waiting for you to come and take a seat next to him. As though he's already our buddy and we just don't know it yet. Not so. Because without proper representation, without the necessary mediator, without a required intercessor, is to perish in the way. What was true here in the Old Testament is true to this day. So here then, what we have is God's already delivered people. Israel has already been delivered according to the the gracious extended hand of our Lord. And we must ask, how does this possibly happen? This little insignificant nation and not to any other. Well, as we've seen thus far, God in his mercy must initiate everything. Again, God in his mercy must initiate everything. And the Lord, through the pen of Moses, calls that to attention back in verses 3 through 6 that we looked at last time. Last Lord's Day. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Who initiated that relationship? Sovereign God did. And I destroyed Egypt. But to you I've shown my love. But to you I've shown my mercy. But to you I've dispensed my grace. That's what he did. And then we see in the scripture that he decrees what he will do. He carries out what he decrees. And then he calls attention to what he has done. For he is the sovereign one. He says, look, you see what I did to the Egyptians. But I brought you to me. He says, I judged the Egyptians. I delivered you. Quite simply, God made a choice. Amen? God made a choice. In his mercy, he chose Israel. Not because of anything good in them, beloved. Did they have any innate righteousness? That is, did they have righteousness in and of themselves that caused God to to take notice and to say, look at how God-honoring they are? No, as a matter of fact, before they go in to enter the promised land, 40 years after this, the Lord says this through Moses. Deuteronomy 9, verse 5. 
Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. Are you going in to possess the land? But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Point. God's faithful to his word. He said he would deliver them 430 years before this. He decreed it. He's carrying out what he decreed. Know therefore, verse 6, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. You're a stubborn people. Anything innate within them that would cause God or stir God up to want them? No. They're just as wicked as all the other nations. It was God in his grace that reached out to them that saved them. So so as to make a point here, it's not as though God was everybody's friend and they just didn't know it. We get this? We must get this. If you don't get this, you will not ever understand your desperate need for a mediator that stands between you and this holy, righteous God. And there's only one. And it's not Moses. Hint, hint. Look, God said in Deuteronomy, all the nations were in, the, in darkness of sin and idolatry. All of them. They were all rebels against God. They were all subjects of his wrath. And yet from out of them all, God calls Israel to himself. Undeserving Israel. Not because of anything good in them, but only because of his free grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Everyone who's a believer in here this morning is saved by grace. They're saved by God's unmerited favor. You did nothing to earn it. You can't earn it. You can't work your way into the favor of God. You're already condemned because God is holy and you're not. So you need grace. It's found in only one. Hint, hint. So now here's Israel, already delivered, carried out on eagles' wings. They've been lifted up by grace, carried out by grace, delivered by grace. Egypt, who was pursuing them, was destroyed, according to God's grace for Israel. And now they stand before the foot of Sinai, ready to meet their deliverer in a radical way. Isn't this fascinating? Now, Israel is going to have to learn that not only can they have a relationship with God without the shedding of blood, there's no relationship without the shedding of innocent blood, okay? They've already learned that. They're going to continue to learn that throughout the Exodus account and throughout redemptive history. You sit here today as a believer knowing that. You better know that. Without the death of an innocent victim, the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's woven throughout the Exodus account. Now, they had already been protected from God's wrath when God sent judgment in the last plague upon Egypt, killing the firstborn of every household. Israel was spared. Why? Because of the shed blood of an innocent lamb that was painted over the door frames of their homes. So God's wrath passed over the homes of Israel who were covered by blood. The Passover. Okay, they've learned that. They will continue to learn that. 
Israel is also going to have to learn that God establishes covenant and they cannot know God outside of a covenant. And the third thing they're going to learn is that you can only have a relationship with this holy, righteous God through a mediator, an intercessor. To intercede is to mediate. To mediate is to represent. To represent is to represent again. Sinners need to be rightly represented by one who's not a sinner. And there's only one. Hint. Hint. Now, those are three contours of the gospel. The shedding of innocent blood, covenant, and the need for a mediator. Three contours of the gospel. From Genesis to Revelation, brought together through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate mediator between God and man. Scripture says he's the only one. The only mediator. So the Lord is saying something to this effect back in this time to Israel. I've made you my bride. I'm the groom. I've called you to myself. Now, let the wedding begin. Now you're going to see your groom. So he's already called him his own people, verses 3 and 4. God gives words to speak to Moses. Uh, I mean, God gives words to Moses to speak to Israel. And then in verse 7, notice, So Moses came and called the elders of the people, and he set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. So the elders, here God's appointed spiritual leaders for Israel, communicate God's word to the tribes throughout Israel, camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. Spiritual leadership. Their response, notice verse 8. All the people answered and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So here's God reaching out to his people in love, and they, they genuinely, they genuinely want to reciprocate. Though they can never do it without grace. You can never do it without grace. You cannot serve this God righteously without grace. The grace that saves is the grace that sustains us to the end. The grace that little Garrett is going to need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will need that grace to sustain him to the end. And then God provides means of grace. This is one of those means of grace. The Word of God. Fellowship of fellow believers. Means of grace. Partaking to the Lord's table. A means of grace. Trials, tribulations in our lives. Those are means of grace. Amen? Because trial, fire... Fire, fiery trials, refine those who are real. Those who are of the faith, they're refined and proven to be real. And therefore will persevere by grace to the what? To the end. They will not apostatize. To to apostatize is to, at one point in time, having claimed faith and trust in this one true God, and then turning from that professed faith, because it was only professed, walking away, embracing some other belief system of lunacy. Believing perhaps that all roads lead to God so long as I'm sincere. Grace that saves, sustains to the end. 
So Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now, as we look at this, beloved, we have to ask ourselves, why is Moses going back to the mountain to tell God who's omniscient, who knows all things, what the people said? Right? God knows the intimate meditations of your mind this morning. He doesn't need anyone interpreting them for him. Amen? Okay, so what's up? It's not because God needs a human being to tell him, to inform him of anything. Amen? What we're seeing here being enacted is a covenant ritual. A covenant ritual where a representative of one party goes to the other party and says, here are the conditions, here are the promises, here are the stipulations of the covenant. Okay, And Moses is called by God to play this part. He here is God's mediator. So what's in view here is the necessity for a mediator to stand between God and his people. He says, in effect, look, I've already chose you as my people. So question, will you be mine? Will you be mine? So God is making himself, beloved, here more known according to his already established covenant, covenant he made with Abraham long, long ago. So a covenant, let's get this clear, a covenant is God imposing a relationship upon people. God imposes the relationship. He sovereignly, by the way, dictates the terms. We don't share in this. He dictates the terms. He is the self-governing creator. Is he not? That means sovereign. He's sovereign. We're not. He tells his creatures how it's going to be and what it will entail. He sovereignly provides what is necessary in upholding the covenant and then lays out the responsibilities to those to whom the covenant relationship was given. He's in control. So the conditions are set by God. The relationships here are initiated by God. The terms are arranged by God. He always and only relates to people by way of covenant. Covenant. Word of the day. Covenant. Shedding of innocent blood. And the necessity for a mediator. Words of the day, rather. We're gathered here this morning as recipients of the new what? Covenant. We're recipients of the new covenant. Promised long, long ago, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, the great shepherd of his sheep, the scripture says, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Hebrews 13. He's fulfilled it all. Now, the origin of that new covenant fulfillment was established with Abraham, the father of many what? Nations. And from out of him, God made a race of people. There were no Israelites before Abraham. He came from a pagan nation. God called him out. He made a race of people. God did. God created the Jews. Genesis 12 to 17 describes God's Abrahamic covenant. And then here in Exodus 19, we see a new stage of that covenant, seeing as we do the carrying out of that promise to a much greater degree. Through you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So God renews that covenant covenant with Abraham to Abraham's descendants through Moses, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the seed of Abraham, the prophet who was promised to come who was greater than Moses, our ultimate 
What is it? Mediator. The one who ever lives to make intercession. So here, our Lord, as we have seen, going back thousands of years ago, has provided a mediator, a temporary mediator for Israel at this point in time of history. And now he's going to really press it home. He's going to press the necessity for a mediator home to the hearts of Israel. Because he's about to reveal more of himself, beloved. You see, God's coming down to them. Okay, Moses has to go up to meet with God on a mountain, but this is God, the God of glory coming down from heaven down to a mountaintop to meet. This is the transcendent Lord condescending. This is transcendent God stooping low to meet with fallen sinful men. So as Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, we see God descending on a mountain. We read in Nehemiah 9 verse 13, You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. This is God condescending. That's the picture. God's big, friends. The God who's transcendent is also imminent. The God who's transcendent is ever-existent. He's ever-present. And unless he stoops to show us his kindness and his mercy and his grace, you'll go through life not knowing him, and you'll make up in your own finite imagination what you think he is and how you think you should approach him. God didn't dwell on Mount Sinai. This is God coming down for a visit. (laughs) Amen? He's coming down. He's stooping low for a visit. You know who stooped lower than that for a visit? It's the one who tabernacled among us. Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all this. Amen? The creator of heaven and earth, the God-man, dwelt among us. John 1, verse 14. That literally means he tabernacled among us. He pitched a tent on his created earth. Jesus said this in John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is the Father Who is at the Father's side? He's speaking of himself. He has made him known. In other words, he has exegeted him. Jesus has exegeted. Jesus has rightly, properly explained the Father to us. He stooped low. He condescended. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God looks like? Look to Jesus, who, by the way, is the Christ. That's not his last name. He's the promised one. He's the one that fulfilled all these glorious promises, all of these types and all of these pictures in the Old Testament. He's fulfilled it all. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him, as he said. All of the Old Testament covenants are for the purpose of this ultimate one having condescended coming to this earth 2,000 years ago. Notice verse 9, back to... Moses and Israel, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. So God is going to speak to Moses in such a way that they're going to be riveted, Israel that is, they're going to be riveted on their absolute necessity for a mediator. Okay, he's only preparing them right now. But take your eyes to the other page. Across the way, chapter 20, verse 18. Notice, 
Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. And they stood afar off and they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die, perish. Now that meeting in chapter 20 is preceded here by consecration. They are to consecrate themselves. They are to prepare themselves for that meeting. And then in verses 10 through 15, we, we see the instruction for, concentra- for uh, consa, um, consecration. Notice. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 10. These are the instructions given from God to Moses to be given to the people. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And no hand shall touch him. That is, anyone who touches and is put to death, don't touch the guy who's dead. Leave him alone, or you too will be defiled. That's the picture. But he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. You know, God is very aware of our temptation to run in and presume upon our holy, sovereign creator. He always has been. And outside of Christ, he knows how foolish we can be. We are fallen, guilty men and women who attempt to casually enter in where the scripture says, angels fear to tread. Angels fear to tread, and we want to just traipse in. This is why you need a mediator. (laughs) We see this in the American evangelical church today. A very flippant, casual approach to God. Our culture in its flippancy is invading the church, and the church, rather than standing and testing all things in light of Scripture, begin to adopt the philosophy of the culture. So when people who are truly seeking truth enter into a church and all they see is a reflection of the culture, they say, what's so different about the people of God? That church is just like the club I was at last night, they say. Here the people are to prepare themselves to meet their groom. They're called to sanctify themselves. You see, in other words, friends, communion with God is serious business. He is not to be toyed with. He wasn't to be toyed with then. He's not to be toyed with now. This is why you need a mediator. And there's only one. There is one. God is so holy and we're so sinful that to stand in his presence without this mediator is to be crushed under his wrath. That's why Jesus came, to be crushed by the wrath of God. That's what he bore on the cross, the wrath of God. He was crushed as a sinner, though he was sinless and never sinned. 
He's the mediator. You have to place your faith and trust in him if you ever want to stand before this holy God because you will stand before this holy God. And if you have not this mediator, if you're not covered by his blood, you'll be consumed by this consuming fire. Almighty God, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, you cannot preach the gospel without God's judgment. You're a fool. That is, any preacher is a fool who ever tries to do so. Because when someone asks, are you saved? The question is, saved from what? Better yet, saved from whom? From whom? Saved from God. By God. That's what salvation is. Okay, you you know what this room is filled with? Sinners, saved by grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Okay, you've been given unmerited favor to come before God, to believe, you've been given faith to believe, to escape the wrath of God by having faith and trust in the one who bore the wrath of God in the place of those who believe. There's no grace without justice. To be saved is to be saved by God from God. That's salvation. So notice, they're to consecrate themselves. These are an already delivered people, carried away by God's grace, set here, ready to meet, right? They're on approach now, okay? You know what you're doing here this morning, okay? You may die today. You may die in 100 years. You're in Christ. You're on approach to meet him face to face. You're on approach. Israel's already delivered. They're on approach to meet their deliverer. They're called to consecrate themselves. Notice first, verse 10, they're to wash their garments. Secondly, they're to be ready for the third day. Thirdly, bounds are to be set around the mountain so that they're not consumed by God's holiness. And then fourth, they're to abstain from physical marital relations. So let's take a look at these. Wash their garments. What's the symbolism? Because it's completely, totally symbolic. Okay? Because cleanliness really isn't next to godliness, as your grandma used to tell you. Okay, point is this. God is holy, the people are not. God is pure, they are not. They need to be cleansed before they stand before their Lord. Washing of garments, cleansing of themselves, represents that spiritual truth. They need to be cleaned, cleansed. So it's, it, it, it's a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. Purity required. Inward purity required. Why? Because he sees through everything. He knows everything. You must be pure. Secondly, be ready. There's a three-day wait involved in here with this, with this meeting. So this enables them to have a little time of preparation. Wow, we're on approach to meet our maker. We're on approach to meet our redeemer. He's given us three days to think about these things. And you have to admit, do you not, there must have been a bit of trepidation in the camp. A little bit of nervousness, right? And this is just the meeting at the wedding, so to speak, right? It's not like when I was a kid and waiting for my dad to come home. I stole something from one of the neighbors when I was a kid. And I buried it in the snow. That was brilliant. In the backyard of our next-door neighbor who was a uh, captain of the sheriff's department. That was brilliant. And I told his son I did it. So when the snow started to melt, and Mr. Dilly was standing on his back porch, he going to his son Joe, Joe, come here. 
He's, you know, what are, I'm not going to tell you what these things were. What, what are these things buried in the uh, snow? Where'd they come from? He goes, oh, Johnny, leader next door, stole those and buried them there. <laughs> so he called my mother. And there was nothing worse than having to wait for your father to get home. <laughs> you want to talk about trepidation? I was shaking. I was trembling for my father to come home from work and have to confess this sin to him. This is holy God. This is almighty, transcendent, holy God who's condescended to come down to his people to meet with them. So I think there was a level of trepidation in the camp, fair enough to say. You got three days to wait. Waiting is the hardest. So here they are. And then in verse 12, God says, Moses, set the limits. You need to post some signs. No trespassing. Okay? Post some signs. No admittance. Stay back or you shall die for your own protection. Israel, this is for your protection. This is how much God loves you. Stand back lest you be consumed in his holiness. You need a mediator. I'm allowed to go up, Moses says. You're not. Don't attempt to go there without me or God will consume you, not because I'm anything, but God has appointed me as such. Stay back because this God is holy. He's so pure. Just because of our sinfulness, if we step over the bounds, we'll be incinerated because he's holy. You need a mediator or you'll be consumed. Verse 15, during the three-day wait, man, no conjugal relations with your wife. Is that because conjugal relations are bad, beloved? No. It's, as a matter of fact, it's because they're really, really good. They're a gift from God. Sexuality is a gift from God. It's a blessing from God and, beloved, It is an expression of the covenantal union between a husband and a wife. He said, abstain for three days. Because your true ultimate husband is coming for a visit. Prepare to meet him. Isn't it beautiful? It's a beautiful picture. This is God entering into a deeper covenant relationship with his already chosen people. And the context is worship. Remember when God said to Moses what to tell Pharaoh? Tell them to let my people go so that they can come to what? This mountain and worship me. When God met with Moses by way of the burning bush, he said, bring the people back. And this is will be the sign for you. You're going to come back to this place and they're going to worship me here. And here we are. Now prepare to meet your Lord. Prepare to meet your husband. Prepare to meet your deliverer. We, beloved, are here to prepare ourselves to meet our deliverer. Our sovereign savior. We're on approach. You could end up there today. I hope not. You could end up there today. You could die on the way home and stand before him. You're on approach, and your approach is really short. If you fly, you know. You hear the voice of the pilot, you know. Prepare to land. Get your seatbelts on. Scott scurrying around. Sit yourselves on down. Stewardesses, is that the right politically correct word today? Is that okay? I don't really care, but. 
stewards or stewardesses, clean the cabin, prepare for approach. Amen? Prepare yourselves for approach. God wants his people to realize that he's in a covenantal union with them and he wants them to know that he loves them. Prepare yourselves, he says. Israel's always already been carried away on eagle's wings, verse 4, delivered by grace, commissioned by grace, and here they are at the foot of Mount Sinai to meet their deliverer to worship him at this mountain. That's what this is. Here they are. They're learning, beloved. This is very simple. Elementary to biblical theology, Genesis to Revelation, redemptive history. God's people are learning that their relationship with this living God comes only by way of blood sacrifice. Innocent substitution. The lamb that was slain to cover their doors so that God's wrath passed over them. And they're learning about an established covenant. And along with that covenant, a mediator. This is what they're learning. You know what this is? This is learning to live by what? Grace. You're growing and you're commanded, Christian, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know why you're commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Because you can. Because you have the Spirit of God and you have the Word of God. Therefore, you can. You're enabled. God enables his people to do what he commands them to do. And here he says, consecrate yourselves. Do not presume upon me. Now, some may think it odd here uh, to have boundaries established in the context of a meeting, right? We're going to have a meeting and then I have like a, you know, got to speak to someone over the fence or something. Okay, Moses can come up, but you can't. That's what he's saying, establishing boundaries. And what we see here, beloved, is a tiered system being set up. And you're going to see this tiered system uh, detailed further throughout the Exodus account. And that's actually where we're going, that of the tabernacle, a tiered system of access to be more fully developed in the temple, right? You have a place where a lot of people could meet. You had a place where some people could meet. And then you had a place where only one could meet with God in the Holy of Holies, right? You had the court of the priests, you had the court of the Jews, you had the court of Jewish wives, you had the court of the Gentiles. It's a tiered system that's being laid out here. And there's one place. So take the rectangular layout of the tabernacle or the temple and just put it on its end. And that's what you have here, a mountain, And at the height of that mountain, there's access for one. And if you try at the base of the mountain to pass over the boundary to to the bottom or the mid to the top of that, you'll be consumed. Mediation, intercession, necessary. So naturally, beloved, a number of lessons can be drawn from this narrative. Very important for us today. Namely, God is holy. God is purely righteous. Therefore, beloved, God is other. Amen? God is other. We're not all little gods. Okay? God is God. You're not. I'm not. I'm a sinner, as I've told you 100,000 times, who deserves the pit of hell, and you deserve no less to be right next to me compared to this holy, righteous God. Just think about your thought life. And if you say you don't believe in God, 
Well, I'm an atheist. Ask, answer me this question. What do you do with your guilt? Because you have it. You're guilty and you have feelings of guilt for things against others. What do you do with it? You can't escape it. You can deny it, but you can't escape it. My guilt and yours, Christian, has been carried away and placed upon Christ. My sin has been placed upon Christ. He's the living mediator. We're sinners. We're guilty before God. Simple. So a great gulf exists, particularly because of our sinfulness between us creature and our creator. Now that gulf must be acknowledged. That gulf must be apprehended before that separation can ever be overcome. Unless you realize you're a sinner to begin with, there's no hope for that gulf to be gapped. No bridge. So first, one must understand the gulf exists before it can be dealt with or it can ever be bridged. Secondly, is that proper knowledge of that reality leads to the necessity of mediated access to God. There's only one. You see, someone must stand protection, beloved, against God's holiness, his radiant holiness. Someone must intercede. Someone must mediate. Someone must serve as a go-between, the holy God of the universe and fallen sinners, or will be incinerated by his holiness. So here's Moses. He stands as a picture of that, and he certainly serves as that in this point in time in history. But Moses himself, beloved, it will be revealed, is inadequate for the task. He's not going to be up for the job, ultimately speaking. Are you following me on this? He's not up for the job. Thus the need for a greater mediator. Thus the need for one who is superior to Moses. Thus the need for one who is an ever-living intercessor. One who ever lives to make intercession for his people. You know, even as Christians... I think we come here oftentimes and we think that we have direct access to God. We make that mistake. We have direct access to God. Make no mistake, beloved, even as a Christian, you do not have direct access to God. You only have access to God by way of his mediator. Period. Now, you can come into the throne of grace boldly because of the mediator, Jesus Christ. You don't enter God's presence without the mediatorial work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only way. Amen? He's the only way. Notice how great he is, how much greater he is. Notice Hebrews 12. Okay, look at this. Are you enjoying the study in God's word this morning, beloved? You really say there, just feel you had to say that. <laughs> Hebrews 12, look at it. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose, wor- <clears throat> whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Okay, that's Israel. That's how they responded to this. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, he shall be stoned. It shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Notice that. Here you're told that you're going to be in the midst. Okay, if, if you were to die today, you would be in the midst of a myriad of angels, thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands. It's going to be, the scripture says there, an awesome sight. And notice though, beloved, the scene is no less awesome. It is no less awful, that is full of awe. That scene is no less awful than the scene of Mount Sinai. So it's not that our approach to Mount Zion, the heavenly reign of our Lord, is less to be in awe of than Israel's approach to Mount Sinai. After all, what happens in the Bible when an angel shows up somewhere? Right? What do they say? Get up and don't what? Fear, because in the presence of angels, men fall as dead men. Just because of the reflected glory of God. They don't have glory in and of themselves. It's the reflected glory of God. They says, get up, don't be afraid, even though you appear to be a dead man. Okay, so what's the difference? It's not because glory right now is any less awesome or awful. The only difference, beloved, is the mediator. Notice verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, See that you do not refuse him. Okay, again, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, and I'm just reading on from what you have on the screen, yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. You know who that is? All those in Christ, and only those in Christ. Therefore, here it is, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is the consuming fire. Same God. By way of this mediator. What's the difference? Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus, the very image of God, cries out for the forgiveness of the children of God, compared to the blood of Abel, which cried out for what? Justice. Because Abel was the first human being made in the image of God who was murdered. Therefore, the earth cried out for vengeance. Christ came, the innocent one, the perfect image bearer of God, and was crushed. And yet his blood cries out for forgiveness. A greater mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we are in worship, our final approach to God. And we're already washed by the righteousness of Christ. If your faith is in in Jesus Christ, you've already been cleansed. So consecration has taken place, amen? We've been consecrated. We're being consecrated. He died. He shed his blood. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended. And now he sits at the Father's right hand, ever living to make what? Intercession. That means he stands to mediate on your behalf who are in faith. He stands as your rightful, proper representative. 
without which you'll be consumed. And Jesus said in John 3.18, right? John 3.16, we all know what that says. Go ahead. God so loved the world. Go ahead. You see it at football games all the time. (laughs) Hey, listen to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, now don't miss verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. In other words, the only mediator between men and God, Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2.5, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He clothes us in his righteousness. So in Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who stands as our rightful representative, who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beautiful, isn't it? Christian, Lord's Day worship, what we do here, beloved, is the most important thing we do in life. This is the, believe it or not, this is the most important thing we do. We are gathering together as God's people to meet God under his word. Okay, preaching is part of worship, amen? It's just not singing. God's word is being heralded. It's being proclaimed. And when we come in here, beloved, we must check ourselves. And we must ask, do I come in with unrepentant sin? Right? This is consecration. This is preparation for worship. What about my relationships with my wife, my my spouse, my children? What about my relationship with members of this congregation? This is how we prepare ourselves to worship. It's serious business, amen? Requirements for worship are greater under the new covenant. You get that? Requirements for worship are greater, yet also the manifestation of grace is greater. So what does that mean? You can worship here. You can come and worship God with joy and gladness in your heart. Why? Because you have the spirit of the living God in you. And the scripture says you are the very what? Temple of the living God. So if I don't have a heart of joy, I can repent of it and plead, Lord, please grant me joy. Grant me gladness. Grant me repentance that I need to worship you in an acceptable manner. And where do we look when we're not, beloved? Don't look inside yourself. That's the wrong place to look. Don't look inside and say, well, I'm not this and I'm not that. That's right, you're not. So look where? Look to Christ, the perfect mediator, the perfect intercessor, the perfect sacrifice, who declares you as perfectly what? Righteous. You're declared righteous. So we can come in with joy and gladness. Let me say this to close for the young people. Perhaps you're a youngster, teenager. Perhaps you're in your 20s, youngster. Perhaps God's drawing you to faith and you just don't know it yet. 
And perhaps you're saying, yeah, I see this cat up here with the tie on and all this. I hear the songs, I see the order, I hear the word. He's really super authoritative. I really don't like that. That's okay. And perhaps you see all this and and you profess to be in Christ. Let's say you profess to be in Christ. And you say, I just don't get it. I don't get the joy part, the gladness part. Trust me with this. Trust me. If you're in Christ, you will get this eventually. So for now, fight for it. Fight for it. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, he sustains you. So by grace, you can cry out to God. Amen? Fight for it. For those of you who are saying, Christianity seems really boring. Things seemed a lot more exciting at the foot of Sinai. Things are really kind of quiet around here. They seem a bit boring. Let me tell you this. Let me assure you of this. Sinai will kill you. Sinai will destroy you. Jesus came and his flesh was destroyed for you. That's why it's peaceful. The Prince of Peace has come. And he's the only mediator between holy God and fallen man. Come to him. Come to him by faith and you shall be saved. And he will move you from the category of condemnation to the category of no condemnation because Christ bore it all for you if you believe by faith. And that too is a gift.